Take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah 11, please. Isaiah 11, we're going to look at the whole chapter. I would remind you this is the word of the Lord. It will indeed stand forever. Hear God's word for you today. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant, the remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east, and they shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of this sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels and he will lead people across in sandals and there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, Would you give life and light to our minds that we would understand and believe your perfect word for Christ's sake, amen. 
It's intriguing the studies that are coming out uh, as to really kind of the power that the human mind has over the human body. It's really intriguing. We tend to think of our, our bodies as being our biggest strengths. We think of our bodies as being our strongest muscles and things like that. But uh, as uh, kind of science begins to understand, the medical community begins to understand more fully, uh, they begin to understand that that's not actually the case. It's not the body uh, that's the biggest muscle, so to speak. It's the brain. The mind is immensely powerful, and you can read all sorts of different kind of ways that that works. A thing called hysterical strength. This is the most amazing thing. And those are the stories that you've read where like a mother sees her child that kind of gets pinned under a car or something of the sort, and mom will run out and pick up the car and get the kid out and afterward set the car down and then look and go, how did I just do that? Having no idea that the brain just told all of the muscles in the body to do all of the things and, you know, able to process One of the newer things that they're beginning to understand, this is, I think, just the most spectacular and interesting thing, is that the ability to contemplate a thing actually alters the way the body performs. One of the studies that they've done is they'll have uh, athletes who go and run races, uh, like track stars or whatever else, spend 15 minutes before they go run contemplating fast things making a list of all the fastest animals they can think of, of the fastest machines they can think of. And it's intriguing how getting their brain to contemplate things that move quickly when they go out and run, they run faster. Or getting weightlifters to think about things that are powerful and strong. It gets the brain kind of working and then it gets the body to follow. In light of that, kind of our task today, God willing, as we look at Isaiah 11, is going to be to contemplate one really important thing, but in a lot of different ways. This is going to be a slightly kind of non-Presbyterian sermon in some sense. It's going to have a whole lot of points, but the points will be a lot shorter. As we, in essence, try to contemplate the beauty and the goodness of Jesus. In fact, we're really going to kind of specifically look at it through the lens of what good does Jesus do? What good does Jesus do? Isaiah 11 is really kind of the, the, not pinnacle of the prophecy, but a clarification of a prophecy that at this point has now been running for multiple chapters through the book of Isaiah. You remember the structure of the book so far has been uh, God is laying out, Isaiah is laying out uh, the two different things that are being built You have God building his kingdom. You have uh, mankind building their kingdom, and their kingdom is a mess. Uh, Israel has built a nation in their own image, and it's corrupt, it's unrighteous, it's unjust, it's unkind, it's unmerciful, it's all kinds of bad. And there's been this tremendous gap between the two kingdoms and trying to figure out, okay, how, how do we get to see these two things being built? Well, how do we get to see which one wins and how are they going to interact? And in chapter 9, we've seen the prophecy of the child, the prophecy of the coming king, the prophecy that God will provide a king that is better than any of the mess that Israel or Judah have to offer. This king will be the king who rules and reigns. This king will be the king that takes the building that God is establishing and kind of cements it in history. 
This king will be the one that God raises up to ultimately establish his coming kingdom. Now, as New Testament Christians, we know the rest of the story, and so it's easy for us to kind of look back with the eyes of faith and say, well, obviously the New Testament has laid this out. It is Christ and Christ alone who is this coming king, Jesus, the baby born of the Virgin Mary, the one whom we have just confessed in our faith. But they don't yet know all of that and instead are forced to look at the original reading audience. The Jews look at the prophecy in the text. And we get to Isaiah 11 where this child that has been introduced is further elucidated, further illumined, further clarified in exactly what kind of king he will be, exactly what kind of good he's going to do. Why will it matter? Are we not just changing one king for another one? Are we changing more of the same? Where the new is the same as the old. No, instead here we have in a kind of a series of kind of uh, ideas and themes a presentation of the difference of this king. In fact, starting in verses 1 and 2, this king's going to be a totally different kind of king. His person is going to be different. His essence is going to be different, but not entirely different. He's a different kind of king, but not quite entirely different. I love how it's introduced. There's going to be this king a shoot coming forth from the stump of Jesse. So we have a a tree illustration, the tree that has fallen over. And the only thing that remains is the stump that's left behind. And here now, springing from this stump, new growth arrives. This new growth is in the first clause introduced as kind of a a shoot growing up from it. You know where you've cut off like the worst around here are the sycamore trees, right? The gumball trees. You, You cut them off and it's like you cannot kill those things. You cannot kill them. That stump will always produce some green growth that's going to try to grow up and poison your yard with those awful little things. But here, not just with that of growing from the the lineage of David, the the kingship of David, but even a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. It's growing, but growing to be a real tree. Connected to David, but in verse 2 explained, very different. Very different than David. David's a man after God's own heart. He was uh, a good and godly man with some pretty spectacular flaws. This king's going to be a bit different, though. This king will have the Spirit of God rest upon him and rest upon him in such a fashion that his very nature will be different. He will have the Spirit of God. He will have the Spirit of God in such fashion that wisdom and understanding belong to him. Counsel and might are his. Knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His, his character is so transformed because it's an outworking of his essence. Really, verses 1 and 2 are laying this kind of conundrum out that the Jews would have really wrestled through of, this is a king that is like David, but is not like David. This is a king that is of David, but not of David. He's different 
while being the same. And what it's setting us up for is this great David's greater son, as one of the hymns has said, the surpassing glory, the surpassing beauty, the surpassing holiness of this king. Similar but different. And in fact, now we jump into really the next kind of five, going quickly, illustrations of what this king's kingdom is going to look like. Verses 3 through 5 lay out this king is a king to be enjoyed, this king is a king to be treasured, this king is a king to be worshipped, because he is a righteous king. He's a righteous king. Look at what it explains. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. So his starting point is that he delights in who God is. He doesn't delight in the public opinion of others. He doesn't delight in money. He doesn't delight in power. He does not delight in the, all of the kind of different points of leverage that people use on politicians. He doesn't delight in any of the things that your standard politician tries to amass or tries to utilize to increase their power. Instead, his delight is so righteously and perfectly attuned that it is fully consumed in delighting in God himself. He treasures God. This King Jesus fears the Lord and fears Him in such profound, robust, and comprehensive fashion that His entire reign reflects the values of the Lord Himself and not the values of a political or earthly kingdom. As a result, look at what His justice looks like. He shall not judge by what His eyes see. So when it comes time for him to decide what is fair, what is right, what is good and true, he's not simply looking at what his eyes can see. He's not evaluating what's true and false by what he can observe. He's not deciding disputes simply by what his ears hear. It's it's not like he can, again, be leveraged into a mistake. Instead, he judges with righteousness. And in fact, interestingly, a comprehensive righteousness, so much so that he judges in favor of the poor. Those that would have been overlooked in this time, remember that's what Israel is being judged for. They're not defending the weak. They're not helping the helpless. They're not giving voice to the voiceless. Instead, they are standing strong with those that are in power already. They are standing strong with the rich at the expense of those that cannot help themselves. And interestingly, the Lord says, no, this king will be so in tune with God himself that his justice will be true justice. A justice that is an outworking of righteousness, so much so that he cannot be bought by the rich. He cannot be lured away by power. He cannot be led astray by influence. Instead, deciding with righteousness, the middle part of verse 4, deciding with equity for the meek of the earth, And in fact, his justice is so right and good and true, the consequences that follow, 
the end of verse 4, he strikes down the unrighteous. He strikes down his enemies. He uh, destroys the earth with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. He doesn't get it wrong. He doesn't make mistakes. This is one of those points that is, I, I find, wonderfully reassuring the older I get. I guess more reassuring would be the actual proper way to say that sentence. I find it to be more reassuring the older I get because the older I get, I think it seems like the more I am aware of the corruption of the world around. And the corruption uh, in the government or the corrupting influence of money or the corrupting influence of power, the corrupting influence of the lies uh, that people tell, the media tell, that social media constantly tells. It seemed like really, I guess, in the last five years or so, it's almost like we've kind of nationally entered into this moment of really almost such deep-seated cynicism and skepticism regarding the truth that we just, it's like we want to just throw up our hands and say, I don't even know what's true anymore. I don't care. I just hate all the bad guys. And I find it so kind of comforting that when it comes to describe what does the reign of King Jesus look like, the opening salvo is in many ways kind of the complete contradiction to our kind of moment in time and culture. A time in which we live where people are constantly being bought and sold, not thankfully as slaves anymore, but behind closed doors, bought and sold to produce certain types of opinions, certain types of entertainments, certain types of pleasures or products, or certain types of perspectives on truth. It's been one of the hardest things as we watch the news over the last really three or four years, hasn't it? Where people that adamantly say one thing six weeks later are saying the exact opposite. And you can't figure out why until you find out which slush fund paid them off to change their mind. And interestingly, to see uh, our king, King Jesus, is not that way. There's no bribes you're going to find behind the scenes. There's no slush fund that's paying him off. There's no rich benefactor. You're not going to find that he's connected to uh, George Soros or any other political action figure. You're not going to find that he's actively working in a way that's disingenuous. You're not going to find that he's two-faced in any way. You're going to find that he is righteous in his entirety. He is so filled with delight in God Almighty that his rule and reign is righteous. Now, okay, realistically, some of us in the room, I guess perhaps the older we get or the more we've watched the news or the more discouraged we've grown, the more comfort we might want to find in this. Realistically, I'm I would guess many of us over the last six, seven years have gotten to the point where we've gotten so fed up, we're just like, I'm just going to turn the news off. Like, I'm just not going to watch politics anymore. It's just, it's just too hard. It's too emotionally draining, and it's too hopeless. And I love that every moment in time that you feel that, Every new news story where you, you get that emotional tension where you're just like, man, I just want to throw my hands up and just be done with the whole mess. Let the whole system just burn it all to the ground. 
I love that every time you feel that, it's an opportunity for you to actually pause and go, you know what? This kingdom might be corrupt. It's the least corrupt on planet earth probably. But this kingdom might be corrupt, but I worship a king who will never be corrupt. I'm a part of a kingdom currently that will never be corrupt. I'm a member of a kingdom that will ultimately be in righteousness and truth and justice and mercy. And whereas I can watch the news and really be honest about the fact that it's a hot mess, I'm a member of a kingdom that never will be. Or, honestly, some of us, maybe not getting quite so fed up with the news around us, but getting fed up with our circumstances. Perhaps we feel like we're not being treated fairly. Perhaps we, not, we feel like we're not being treated with the proper respect that we deserve. Maybe we don't, our coworkers don't understand our situation. They're treating us with lack of kindness, lack of respect, lack of truth, lack of dignity, whatever else. And it's so easy for us to grow discouraged and be like, I'm just going to go to my boss's boss's boss and try to blow the whole thing up. I'm just so mad. Or how dare they treat me that way? I'm going to get revenge. How dare they? I deserve better. And I love that for Christians, this has been one of those large underpinning truths that kind of anchors our response to conflict. That we worship a king who is not tricked. I love that. You realize King Jesus is not fooled. (laughs) Like, whereas the bad guys might get one over on everybody else, they might be fooling everybody. They might fool everybody in the company for a season but they will never fool Jesus. And at the end of time, when his kingdom is brought fully into the consummation, the fullness of glory, all of those secret things will be made known. All of those deeds done in darkness, those lies told in light, all of those moments in time in which they were out to get you but pretended to be your friend. All of those moments in Southern culture where they said, bless your heart to your face while they sharpened the knife for your back, all of those will be brought to light. And our God, our King, the Lord Christ, will judge with justice. Friends, you don't have to take revenge. You don't have to worry about whether or not it'll be fair. (laughs) You can rest in a king who takes care of his people. He is the righteous king who judges with justice. Doesn't stop there. That would be great, right? Just if that alone was it. You're like, man, I'd I'd take any politician like that, right? I mean, a, a righteous one? I'll take it. A righteous king, a righteous governor? But then what happens in verses 6 through 9, one that we read all the time in 
Christmas time, read with our lessons and carols. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion, and the fattened calf together. And you have all of these amazing <laughs> uh, animals that should never be in the same location at the same time right now, uh, right? Wolf, living with lambs, not a good idea, I guess, if you want the lambs to live very long. Uh, unless, I guess, you want really fat and healthy wolves. I mean, that's a great way to do that. Uh, leopards lying down with young goats. Again, not a great idea if you want long life for your goats, but you'll have fat and healthy leopards. Um, but interestingly, what's being presented here is such a robust level of peace that even kids can lead them along the way. I love this kind of mental image that you have here of like a young child kind of going out to walk the dog but rather than walk the dog, they've got, you know, like the young goat leash in one hand and the leopard in the other, which is a bit bigger than the kid. Like, I love just the mental image that Isaiah is using here. That you have the, the idea of a kid kind of leading the family pets out to go potty in the backyard. And one is this tiny, adorable little lamb that's kind of bouncing all over. And this other massive wolf that's kind of prowling about. The, and everybody's happy together. The kid's not in danger. The lamb's not in danger. And you're like, all right, cool. That's a weird family, I guess. Cool family pets. The cow and the bear grazing together. Well, if you saw it this week, it went viral. I guess a hunter was up in, uh, or was a tour up somewhere near Alaska, and a grizzly bear saw the uh, tourists as they were traveling from on top of the, the kind of mountain. And this grizzly bear is probably like 300 yards away. And about seven seconds later, it turns at the last second before it hits the car. And you're thinking, like, bears are these adorable, beautiful little creatures that, you know, all of the kids have, and they're all these, you know, funny little things that love honey. And then you see a grizzly bear moving at full tilt, and you're like, no, nah, I don't think so. I'm not interested in that anymore terrible, terrifying things. But here they're compared to cows, dumb, stupid, safe cows, grazing out, eating straw together. Oh, with the lion that's eating straw with them. So we get to verse 8, and you're like, whew, right? We got a couple of folks in the room. This is their favorite verse. Most of us in the room not interested in this one. You go over across the building, across the parking lot to the nursery, and, and we've got the babies and the toddlers in there with the cobras and the asps and the adders, and everybody's having a good time. I'm not having a good time still. Now, is this some sort of kind of weird Dr. Doolittle King, right? Is this St. Francis of Assisi where he you know, comes out and all of the animals are happy around him? Is that what's being described by Isaiah? And is this Dr. Doolittle? Now, what's being described here? What's being described here is that this is the king that as part of his ministry reverses every curse in creation. And what's actually being hinted at in verses six through nine, all of this is the curse that's delivered after the flood with Noah, the curse that's delivered in Genesis three. This is the king who undoes the curse of God. That's why you get these amazing illustrations of these children playing with predators and everyone's safe. No one's bothered. No one's upset. No one's worried. I remember, this is maybe a decade ago now, it was one of my favorite news stories that was really funny where uh, the zoo up in New York City somehow managed to lose their cobra. 
I'm not sure exactly how they did that, but they managed to lose their cobra. It was like a nine-foot cobra or some stupid thing. It was humongous. Lost this massive snake that somehow got out of the zoo and was just out wandering throughout New York. Of course, somebody immediately then starts a Twitter account for the cobra that has escaped from the zoo and begins to tweet all of the New York City you know, <laughs> folks. And very funny, this is kind of amusing interchange. And then you actually stop and think about it, and you're like, but there's a cobra loose in New York City, and that's probably not a good idea. You know, it took them a week and a half to find this thing, and I'm like, man, I'd want to move. I don't want to stay. I know it's a city of, you know, how many, 10 million people, whatever. I'm not staying. I'm gone. But yet the contrast of what this king's reign is, is that it's a reign that reverses the curse. It, it's, it's undoing what's been done. The curse that is places uh, anger and angst between the animals and mankind is undone. The curse that kind of takes the animals and turns them from largely, you know, vegetarians into largely kind of meatosaurus, as the famous movie says, that's undone. They're no longer predators. They're vegetarians. The curse that ultimately even getting at Genesis 3, that is our downfall, our destruction, is undone. And it's intriguing that I think probably many of us, we don't tend to think about Christianity from that perspective, do we? I mean, we sing it with joy to the world every year, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. He undoes the curse. But you don't think about it that way. Like every day that you live in light of the good news of Jesus Christ, that every day you go out and live out the ethics of the Bible, every day that you meet with God in prayer, every day we are part of that already element of the curse being undone. That we see the pains in childbirth in some very small way resisted and fought against as the church rallies together to help parents raise their children. We see the curse against uh, marriage and families in some small way resisted and fought against as the church rallies together to help people be married and figure out what to do. We even, in some sense, see the curse on the land being fought against and resisted as we together cry out in prayer together for the Lord to bless His people in our various labors. It's, it's an element of resisting the curse. Fighting against it now, is that yet fully done? No. It's not fully done. Romans tells us that creation even now is groaning out, waiting for its redemption. But this is the kind of king that we worship that right now it's happening in a very, very small way. But on the last day, it happens in the all the way. So that the curse is undone and in fact even not only undone but is undone more than the Garden of Eden. Right? Some of us at various times in our lives have said with all of the best intention of the world but perhaps a bit of ignorance, I wish we could just go back to the garden Right? I wish Adam and Eve had never eaten the fruit, not an apple, had not eaten the fruit. And in reality, what Christ brings is better than the garden. You realize that Adam and Eve still had the ability to mess it all up. They did. 
you get the impression it was pretty quick, actually. What we get in the new heavens and new earth cannot be messed up anymore. The curse is so fully reversed, it's so fully done, it cannot be messed up anymore. We lose the ability to even sin at all. So you have David's greater son, the Lord Jesus, who rules and reigns in righteousness and judges accordingly. He reverses the curse in its totality. You think, man, that sounds pretty good. I'd like to be a part of that. Well, funny enough, that's exactly what happens. Verses 10 and 11 begin to explain what kind of king this is. This would sound like the old joke that any club that would accept you as a member is not the kind of club you want to be a part of. Right? That's usually the old joke. If the members are people like you, well, <laughs> it's not the kind of club you really want. They let in the riffraff if they let us in. This would be the kind of club I'd want to be a part of. This is the kind of kingdom that I would like to belong to. This is the kind of king that I want to be governed by. How can I make that happen? Well, I can't ultimately. But providentially, this is the kind of king that already does that for himself. Verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse, this king, who shall stand, and I love this, is, begins to identify. He is a signal for all the peoples. Rather than him being kind of hidden away, rather than this being some sort of kind of elitist or exclusive club that you can't get into, right? This is the like, you know, no riffraff allowed kind of club. This is the one who invites all peoples to come and join him. And in fact, actually sets up the giant flashing neon sign this way for the good king. This way for the good kingdom. This is the way that you enter in. He invites all in. This day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire. So his kingdom's gonna be so great that the nations, we would, most of us in the room would be represented as that, those of us that are non-Jewish, would inquire of him and would be received, be brought in. And be brought in even his resting place, being glorious. We're brought into the glory, the grandeur, the goodness of this king's reign. Eleven then gives the application of that. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand a second time. So Israel's brought back from uh, the exile once, but now uh, using it metaphorically to say that he's going to gather in his people from all over. And what you have in this list in verse 11 is more or less not the entirety of the known world, but it is a very, very large piece of the known world, largely occupied by bad guys. Assyria, that's kind of this way. Egypt, it's kind of that way. Cush is way down that way. It's the expansive map of all of the enemies to say, look, God's people are going to be gathered from all over. Shinar's Babylon, gathered from all over to be brought into this kingdom. It's not the exclusive elitist club that no one can join. In fact, this king is the one who's so faithful that he'll leave the 99 to go chase the one. He goes and he gets his people. He's the king that gathers us in. He's the king that brings us together. He's the king that finds his people and saves them. We'll touch late on time, so I'm going to keep going instead of applying that one. Sorry, but we're going to move so that we make sure 
We have time for the supper. Verses 12 through 14 explain a bit more of what his reign looks like here. Now, not simply the righteous king, the curse-reversing king, the gathering king, but now 12 through 14, he's the victorious king. He will raise a signal for the nations, right? So uh, think again, the bat signal here, now not gathering Batman to come save the day, but instead gathering all of the nations, all of his people to come from all over the world, from every corner of the earth to gather, raise a signal for the nations, will assemble the banished of Israel, gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. He'll gather all of his people together. And what will he do with them? You get to see two elements of victory that show up in verses 13 and 14. First, the jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Now, uh, what's being talked about with Ephraim and Judah at this point are the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel. You know, Israel used to be one united kingdom and then after David, it splits into two. The northern kingdom goes really bad really quickly uh, and becomes a massive problem. By the time this is being written, the northern kingdom's getting ready to be invaded. 722, they're invaded by Assyria and they're basically wiped off the map. The southern kingdom, not quite as bad, but still bad, lingers for another 140 years, roughly until 586, they're invaded by Babylon. And both of them are taken off the map and they basically remain off the map for uh, roughly 2,000 years, more or less. But interestingly, what does this king's reign accomplish? Is that the brother, brother brother-to-brother jealousy that has existed and the brother-to-brother fighting that has existed, verse 13, goes away. The anger that they've had between each other goes away. The bitterness that they've had toward each other goes away. In fact, these two formerly one nation that have hated each other is completely removed and is so completely and comprehensively removed that what happens after it is they join together to go and be the Lord's tool to defeat his enemies. I love this. What what does this victorious king's reign look like? It's so victorious that he's uniting his people together and then they become the weapons of war to accomplish his victory. So reconciled together, as 2 Corinthians said it, with our ministry of reconciliation, that we then have the ability to go love and change the world. This is one of the most amazing things, intriguing things. Tom and I talk about this all the time. Why the Lord would use us? Like, if we're picking teams, guys, let's be honest, we're not the first pick, or the second, or really anywhere close till we get to the end, right? I mean, if we're going to be honest about what's in our hearts, I mean, if we're going to be honest about how faithfully we evangelize, if we're going to be honest about how faithfully we disciple, we're not the first choice. I mean, how long have you had the Holy Spirit living inside you, and how much of a mess are you still? But yet, interestingly, the Lord's talking about his kingdom is such that, no, he's going to unite us together, and he's going to reconcile us together, and he's going to take people who used to hate each other and unite them together, and then they will become his objects of ministry that he will use to reach the ends of the earth. The unity, 
the body of Christ. I love that we get to see this one happen in the Gospels just really as soon as it happens. Jesus lives, he dies, he's raised into glory, or I mean raised to life uh, before he ascends into glory. And what immediately happens in the church is you begin to see already the Jews and the Gentiles become like this. Right? The two people groups that would have hated each other more than ever before suddenly become united together, and we get to watch it happen in the book of Acts, and it's continued ever since, constantly reconciling and uniting. Constantly reconciling and uniting. And then lastly, we might say, well, I have one big worry. If this is the kind of kingdom, and the the king is perfect, and all of his reign is perfect, and all the good things are perfect, some of us I mean, if we're going to be honest, we know that we would mess it up, right? I mean, realistically, it was like, if it's a perfect idea, if it's a perfect world, it would be great. The problem is, is I'm going to ruin it. I mean, Jesus may be perfect, but I'm not, and given enough time, I will grasp defeat from the jaws of victory. But 15 and 16, I love how it ends. That can't happen. Because the Lord is so faithful and so full and comprehensive in his care that he will make it happen. Verse 15, he will go and destroy his enemies, destroy all of his enemies, even in a cataclysmic, cosmic fashion, so that even the Nile is altered. (laughs) But then verse 16, the, the byproduct of that is a, in essence, a paved way home. He's the king who brings his people home safely, who brings them back. He's the king who cares, who watches over, who tenderly provides for his people. Now, some of you in the room, that's probably a point you need to think about at least a little bit. That as you carry whatever hurt and heartache you have in your heart, you carry it with you all day, all week, all month, all year. To know that he's the king who cares, who knows you, who loves you, and the burden that you bear, he bears it with you because he loves you until he'll bring you home. It's also, I would say just briefly as we end with application, what makes the table so special here? That in a few moments, really roughly a prayer, a hymn, and then another prayer from now, we will eat a meal with the King of Kings. We will eat a meal with this King, and He will invite us to be a part of His kingdom for the kingdom feast. That's why it's so special, because we get to join in with Him, and why we might have just a few brief moments to praise and thank him as we prepare for it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for King Jesus and the perfect rule and reign that he exercises. We do look forward to the end of time where the kingdom is consummated. For Christ's sake, amen.